You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, uh, which I haven't seen in weeks, and I can't even remember if I what my office looks like. And, and anyway, with me this week is Michael Farmer in Woodstock, Georgia. How are you, sir? I'm good, David, all things considered. All right. Getting, getting progress done on your book. Yeah, we were talking about that before we started recording, if our, our listeners are wondering how on earth David knew that. <laughs> yes, we talk before we hit record, dear listeners. Uh, I, I, I don't know, that that might be dispelling the illusion a little bit too much. And also David's clairvoyant. We have, well, you know, my book's on Gabriel Marcel, who believed in that stuff, so maybe that would be, maybe that would be appropriate. Yeah. Uh, the one who thinks I'm clairvoyant, uh, clairvoyant is Nathan Gilmore, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes it with you, sir? I, I have not seen Emanuel College for several weeks, so uh, I, for whatever reason, I do remember what my office looks like, perhaps in a uh, nostalgic haze of quiet <laughs> and thinking and reading without cats or children. But uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, coming up on the last couple weeks of spring semester at Emanuel College, so trying to wrap it up digital style. Excellent. Well, before we turn to this week's topic, what have we what have we got on tap for our listeners in this and other podcasts? There may have been a Christian feminist podcast three days before this. We're not sure. Um, there is some illness in the Christian feminist camp, so uh, things might be going slower. I don't know. I haven't edited it yet. The files haven't been sent to me. So my guess is it's going to be next week before there's a Christian feminist, which, you know, is three days from when you downloaded this, probably. So be patient, listeners. Be patient. Uh, there's also a Christian Humanist Profiles interview with Christoph Markshies. Uh, on a book called God's Body, which is a fascinating interdisciplinary exploration of, you know, the doctrine that uh, God is spirit and how that might relate to bodily images of God in the Bible as well as Stoic doctrine as well as rabbinic mysticism. It was a romp of a book and it was a blast of a conversation. Cool. Sounds great. Well, listeners, uh, I hope you'll enjoy those conversations that have already happened when they drop. And, well, I hope you'll like this one, too. But we haven't had it yet, so... I but, guess... but by the time you're listening to this, we will have had it. So, think that over. Yeah. Oh, man. All right, with that uh, pregnant pause of meditation being my segue... Uh, our topic this week is an article that N.T. Wright wrote for um, Time. Was it was it in the magazine or was it simply at Time.com? Uh, I don't actually know the answer to that question. I only looked at it on Time.com, so okay. uh, being a solipsist, I'll say it was only online. <laughs> Excellent. The title is Christianity Offers No Answers About the Coronavirus. It's Not Supposed To. And this was published, uh, when was it? It was updated on, well, actually, uh, March 29th was when it was published uh, with a some, some kind of small update, but who knows what that was on the very same day. Uh, according to the article itself, N.T. Wright is described as the professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews. 
a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford University, and the author of over 80 books. Um, that seems like kind of a thin description to me. So what else should we know about your pal Tom going into this article? <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, I have been I have been reading uh, N.T. Wright's books now for 25 years. Uh, he's one of those figures who, in my mind, kind of spans the late 20th and early 21st century, both in his publication and I would say in his influence. I mean, by the late 90s, uh, he was a figure who was, especially in you know the more conservative end of mainline Protestantism. Uh, and in the evangelical world, offering an alternative to, uh, you know, the very strong establishment orthodoxy of historical critical uh, Bible reading, as well as an alternative to, uh, you know, the, a kind of Bible reading that is, you know, just inherently suspicious of uh, academic history. Uh, Wright's own training uh, was in classics, uh, and in his scholarship on the New Testament, uh, he takes what he calls a critical realist approach to the text. Uh, so he wants to say that the things that are going on in the New Testament, which is what he spends most of his time reading about, uh, do make real reference to real events, real people, having real thoughts. Uh, he also wants to read them as literary texts, which means taking into consideration what are the conventions of historical reportage in the first century AD, uh, taking into consideration, you know, uh, what does it mean to write about a person? Uh, you know, he wants to compare it to rabbinic writings. He wants to compare it to classical writings. Uh, he's really, you know, one of those uh, pervasive interdisciplinary kinds of writers, like I, you know, talked about with Christoph Marxies just a moment ago. And here's where uh, N.T. Wright's career has been interesting because relatively early on, which is to say, you know, I, I would say from the mid-90s on, he has geared his work not towards the Society of Biblical Literature uh, or mainly to the Biblical Scholarship Academy, uh, but to a church audience. Uh, and so, you know, some of the books of his that have sold the best are his commentary series, The New Testament for Everyone, his translation of The New Testament, and a number of books that uh, certainly draw on his scholarly work, and his scholarly work, by the way, is also very good, uh, but are decidedly pitched towards a more broadly educated, non-specialized audience. Uh, so while people like me have read uh, the first three volumes of his, his scholarly collection, The New Testament and the People of God, and have started into the 1600-page beast, uh, on the letters of Paul that he wrote as part of that series. Uh, more people by far are familiar with his church-oriented commentaries and work in theology. So um, anything else, David? I mean, you know, uh, the, obviously if I uh, had a long enough leash, I could talk about N.T. Wright for some time. But uh, any other particulars that you want me to touch on? He has had a stature... Um, mm -hmm. over the past uh, several decades that his biography and his areas of expertise are not there are not the, the same as C.S. Lewis's but he has occupied some of that position of uh, a a Christian churchman who is also um, I wouldn't I'm not sure if you would say public intellectual um, but a voice who speaks for um for Christianity in in public, um, yeah. a, a, a public face and public voice. Yeah, if I were to name public intellectuals in the Christian sphere, he's definitely one I would name right now. And he um, he's respected broadly across tr Christ Christian traditions. So, I, I mean, obviously Anglicans like him, but you, I, I, I was in a book group at a Presbyterian church that, that used one of his books, Catholics, uh, you know, many Catholics like him. I suspect uh, very low church people find a lot to like in N.T. Wright, too. He's, he really is a giant in contemporary theology. And what's interesting is he's a giant both in academic theology and in popular theology. You don't see that very often. Right, and he's got interesting enemies, which I kind of like about him. Uh, he, you know, uh, 
and I, I haven't listened to Christ the Center for a number of years now, so I don't know if they still talk about N.T. Wright as often as they do about Carl Bart. No. Uh, but, do they get but, him as wrong as they get Bart? Uh, they used to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, guy, the guys over at the White Horse Inn don't like Wright very much, or at least they don't like the new perspective on Paul, which Wright is a major figure. Right, right. So on one hand, folks in that camp, you know, in the sort of, you know, uh, very defined, reformed, uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church circles don't like N.T. Wright because of the new perspective on Paul. On the other hand, uh, people in the homebrewed Christianity sphere, if you will, have serious problems with him because he he does have that realist streak. Yeah. Uh, so so it's interesting. I mean, he uh, he is always taking fire uh, from his right and from his left, if you'll allow the French Revolution metaphor. Can I ask a serious question? I'm sure you're capable. How does a man write 80 books? I mean, I know that <laughs> I, I know that he's he's been doing it for a long time, but he's not 80 years old, and he didn't start writing books out of the womb, or maybe he did. I just can't fathom writing 80 books and doing anything else with my life because he was an active bishop for a long time, and now he's a theology. Yes, he was. Now he's a theology professor, and I get the sense he actually teaches, and he's not just holed up in an office somewhere writing books. I just have no idea how a person number one has the ideas to fill 80 books, and number two, has the time to write them. So a couple notes on that. One is, uh, like Walter Brueggemann, who's another Bible scholar who I think of as, you know, massively prolific, he repeats some material, let's just be honest. Uh, sure. But then the other thing is that, you know, uh, a lot of his books are very narrative in tone. They're not footnote heavy. They are not nearly as work intensive as an academic book would be. So, for instance, his commentaries, they're very good, uh, but they have more of a conversational feel to them. So I get the sense that he could pound one of those out in weeks rather than in months. And that kind of work, too, is one that previous previous notes and previous work in his extensive backlog of homily and public talks probably also supplements. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, he's dealing with words all the time. <laughs> yeah, that, that said, we also should note once again that one of those 80 books is 1,600 pages long. <laughs> so really, it's five books. He, he, really is, he, he really is preternaturally prolific, so we, we should not minimize that. Has he, has he written a book about how to write yeah. that many books? Because I would definitely read that. Oh, I would read the heck out of that. Yeah, how, how how I wrote that many books, the N.T. Wright story. And the N.T. Writing stands for an obscene Te- number of books. Yeah. <laughs> and the N.T. stands for New Testament, right? <laughs> what does the yeah, N that- stand for, Nathan, since you guys are such buddies? Nicholas. Ah. All right. All right. That's fun. It is. I know him f- uh, the... The stuff of his that I that I've read and appreciated most is uh, stuff dealing with things like uh, the resurrection, um, uh, gospels as historical sources. Um, he uh, churned out a, a a nice little book about the Gospel of Judas when that um, when that whole kerfuffle went down. I don't know, was it 15 years ago or whatever? Um, I, I've mostly uh, the stuff of his that I've read has has is mostly been from from that area um i I like to he he does have some he he has some of his favorite topics um some of which i'm don't track with him on but he writes about enough different things that there's almost always something that you can read from nt Wright that you'll like oh sure i mean just to give one example i uh i got conscripted to do the uh sort of freshman orientation class for the honors program several years ago at Emmanuel College. And our main textbook was a volume that he wrote on virtue ethics. There you go. The man who wrote about everything. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, the beginning of this article, uh, he's talks about the disruption uh, that's in our uh, in our society, in our in our lives, 
um, both our public lives, our private lives, uh, and our ecclesial lives. Uh, and then uh, he he well he he turns to a sick burn on those he calls the usual silly suspects. Um, that's his phrase, not mine. So. Michael Farmer, who might he mean? He doesn't quote anybody, and uh, though he does seem to apply what some of the usual silly things they might be saying are, um, I, I'm, I don't pay much attention to things like Twitter or whatever, so maybe I'm just following the wrong people. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it, think back to 9-11 when Jerry Falwell said that 9-11 happened as a judgment by God on America's attitude toward gay people. Um, that's ah. the sort of thing he's talking about. He, the, the examples he gives are a punishment, a warning, or a sign. And, you know, I'll say I haven't seen a whole lot of that this cycle um, about the coronavirus. In, in fact, what I've seen more than Christians using that is you, I've, I've seen a few um, atheists say that this is like the earth getting its revenge on people for the way we've treated the earth, which, you know, maybe it is. I don't know. But I, I, I haven't noticed a whole lot of Christians saying, oh, this is God's punishment for us for X. Um, maybe because it's global. And, and so it's hitting even, well, I, now that I say that, I, I would imagine that the, the people who think that things like this are God's punishment on people probably believe that the United States is the, uh, the most Christian country in the world. But yeah, I, have you guys seen that? Is that, is, is that something that, that is a major social force? right now i don't know I, I that that's one of the reasons why uh why i asked the question is he 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 leads with that and nothing particularly stuck out in my mind like i can remember that with 9-11 and a lot of other stuff but i well and and one of the reasons for that is the people you might expect to do that are so in the bag for trump that they don't want they don't want to make it sound like Trump has done anything to America that would deserve punishment, if that makes sense. <laughs> so Jerry Falwell said that about 9-11. Yep. No way Jerry Falwell Jr. is going to say that about the coronavirus, right? I did read an article uh, in which a, uh, a Catholic cardinal um, declared this, whole, this global emergency a satanic attack on the exercise of the mass and wanted uh, all the priests everywhere to get together to simultaneously recite the rite of, of uh, exorcism. That sounds um, all right. But in reading about that particular guy, um, he seems to be currently kind of a loony backbencher. Um, Do you so remember his sure name, David? No, I don't. Um, uh, apparently, he has he there there has been some some scandals and kerfuffles associated with him. He's the guy who um, he's the guy who got uh, Pope Francis in the same room with that uh, that lady in Kentucky. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's, I don't remember it's, that guy's it's name. It's that guy. Yeah, I, I I don't either. But you know, anyway. the Catholic Church has its wing nuts, <laughs> just like the Protestants. Yeah. They're they're everybody. Everybody, we we all have our ecclesial eccentric uncles. the the, the point The point is just I have not heard a substantial number of people claiming that, or um, people loudly doing it. Uh, even a even a minority of people loudly doing it. So, um, I, actually, I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I've seen it here and there, but I, I think you're right. It's not nearly as prominent as it was 20 years ago with the. With the 11 September attacks, I mean, I you know, it's been figures like Hulk Hogan, of all people, has said that this is God's judgment on America, which you know, I mean, noted the alleged Hulk Hogan. Well, and and you know, not exactly moral exemplar Hulk Hogan. So I, you know, uh, <laughs> I, y'all got worse than me. You know, I I gotta say though, I I, I would be lying if I if I said that. Some friends and I haven't discussed the possibility of this being some sort of judgment on America. So maybe I'm one of the usual suspects. I would never proclaim that out loud, and I would never attach it to a, a particular group of people the way Falwell did in 2001. But, uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I kind of like the idea that all, uh, all disasters, all deaths are 
are meant to call us to repentance, which is not the same thing as saying they're a punishment, but they are a call to repentance, yeah. which I, I think you get from Jesus when he they ask him about the the tower collapsing, and yeah. he, he said, yeah, so so I yeah I, I don't know I don't know how big of a distinction you want to make there, but I you know, not punishment, but maybe some sort of warning, the way that all human frailty is a warning. Yeah, I mean if. Yeah, I have a hard time seeing this as a making this an an America centric disaster because it's because it's global. You know, um, it's it'd be sort of like a I don't know a hitman, you know, working with a howitzer. <laughs> but but yeah, I like I like your take on the. The calamities in general are meant to be turning our attention in particular ways. Um, after the silly suspects, Nathan, uh, Wright follows with some harsh words about rationalism and even a short swipe at romanticism. So how would he have us think about these perspectives that he's critiquing? Why is he bringing them in? In what ways? And why does he think they're insufficient? Well, the rationalism is easier to uh, make sense of in the course of his essay than the romanticism. My suspicion is that he wanted something that alliterated with rationalism. Uh, so I'm going to spend more time on rationalism than on the other one. Uh, you know, I, I think that the tendency that he is critiquing uh, is one in which we want every phenomenon in the world uh, to have not only an efficient cause, which we can usually uh, determine, uh, but also an immediately apparent final cause. Uh, so in other words, you know, I mean, if uh, a parking spot opens up at the grocery store, uh, then it's because God is favoring you. Wait, is that well, not I mean, true? You know, <laughs> uh, or you know uh, on, on a slightly darker note you know I mean if someone who I don't especially like has a stroke of ill fortune uh, it's because you know God is punishing that person for opposing me right uh, and so I mean I, I, I think that, that what he's going after here uh, is a more systemic to be sure tendency uh, to interpret history and the contingencies of history, I would say, uh, all in terms of uh, punishment for the bad folks and rewards for the good folks. Uh, and I mean, you know, that this is where, I mean, what you just said about, you know, this being uh, American-centric, uh, I, I think that's a tendency, right? I mean, you know, when... Uh, 11 September happened, I mean, you know, as is well documented, uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, you know, had been striking targets, you know, not only of American military installations, but other targets as well, but on 11 September 2001, it became about America. Um, now, the romantic one, he says, they want to be given a sigh of relief. Uh, all three of us did doctorates in literary studies so all of us are saying that's not what romanticism means like also, I said, I also what just... human being in the world does not want a sigh of relief about this right right so i i yeah. think that I, I think that you know uh this is you know nt Wright doing as writers sometimes do and reaching for alliteration instead of being careful uh that said i mean you know uh i will say that i mean i emmanuel college has been doing a uh, chapel to go is what they're calling it uh, and they asked me to be the speaker for this upcoming Tuesday and when I recorded my message yesterday I, I did make a point of saying you know uh, if you are being told by people that you know because you are Christian you won't get this please understand that you know neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament ever says that the promises are and then I delineated you know theologically the character of those promises right you know it's that those who do suffer and those who do die will find comfort in Christ. It's not that they won't suffer or die in the first place. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I think that might be what the sigh of relief that he is nodding to there might be. 
Uh, but, you know, like I said, I, I, I take it as a bit of sloppy alliteration. Mm. I mean, and this is this is just some clarification, because you've read, you've logged a lot more hours with Tom Wright than me. But... Yeah, is a couple it, dozen of his books. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it rationalism that we embraced a few generations back to want answers for why catastrophes happen and to think that God might have reasons even if they're ones that God does not make apparent to us? Because he seems to he seems to be bashing the desire itself. Well, but later on, and I mean, we'll get to later on, later on, I realize, but uh, he does say, you know, to ask why, but then not to expect a, a rational explanation is still within bounds. So, I mean, I, you know, that distinction might be, I mean, just a little bit too, too hair-splitting for some, but I think he would say that, you know, the impulse to demand uh, justice and the overarching theory that says this is justice and here are reasons alpha beta and gamma why this is just that those are two different kinds of of utterance and we should attend to the difference before we rush too readily to the common ground okay i guess we should get to the next thing uh the what he offers in uh instead of this quick rush to answers uh, is the embrace of lament as the proper Christian response. Um, And I feel like this is something that we've talked about before, Michael. Um, But how does does N.T. Wright define or illustrate lament and how might you extend or clarify or correct however you're inclined Uh, his treatment of biblical lament. Uh, His definition is lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. And he he connects it with many of the so-called psalms of lament, um, where these are are the psalms where the psalmist seems angry with God for the things that are happening to him. And and I, I found this section very interesting. Um, He says, at this point, the Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, come back into their own just when some churches seem to have given them up. And that that rings true to my experience. Um, Reading those Psalms of Lament, having lived a, you know, privileged life in a lot of ways, I found it hard to understand them. And now that we're living in this world where things are radically uncertain, uh, those make more sense to me and and lament the the kind of how long O Lord of those psalms uh, also makes a great deal of sense to me uh, I think ultimately what he's talking about is the wisdom of the wisdom literature of the Hebrew Bible um, and in in particular I think the book of job is very helpful here that job, whom we know to be righteous, whom we know is not punished for his sins, is nevertheless punished, nevertheless scourged. And when he asks why, God's only answer is to tell him essentially none of your business, that this is this is outside of your understanding. Yeah. And, and so the idea that we would approach this not presuming to know exactly what God is up to, I think is exactly right. Um, that, that we need to we need to a- approach this with that wisdom literature with that lament in mind uh, yeah I the American church has historically or at least the evangelical churches that I'm familiar with have not historically been terribly good at lament if you think about um, worship choruses or even hymns there are very few of them in the lament mode and and probably the only way, you're hearing lament on Sunday mornings even before you were hearing them over a, a secure connection is uh, if you were reading the Psalms. I, I, I'm sure there are hymns yeah. and praise choruses that do lament. None of them are coming to my mind. Um, so in, if, if this leads people to rediscover that part of the Christian heritage, which is a major part, right? I mean, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. Um you know, that's a good thing. 
Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why the coronavirus hit, so that N.T. Wright would write this article and we'd all start reading the <laughs> Psalms again. I've got ah, it! Yes, uh, thank you, Dr. Pangloss. <laughs> Huzzah! <laughs> I, I, do, I do appreciate, um, I mean, as you're, as you're walking through that, those ideas, um, Michael, um, I mean, I, I see within myself a too-ready instinct to try to... Uh, to get an to 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 get an explanation that will, in particular, let me know who to blame and how to fix it. That's right. Yeah, and that you're going to be okay, which is the other part of that, right? So, so when Jerry Falwell says nine eleven happens because of the homosexuals, the the hidden implication of that is, which means my being such a man of God that nothing's going to happen to me, Jerry Falwell. Yeah, uh, the, the, it, you know, it's not my fault, right? It's 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 their fault. Um, you know, the ways in which uh, the explanations are instrumentalized, right? Um, it, you know, if if, if I, I, I'm just trying to imagine, you know, in some situations there are explanations that are um, completely unhelpful like if i'm if i'm on a volcano that is currently erupting and and why um if you know for someone to patiently sit down and talk to me about like you know the pressures of magma my boy i mean like don't what, care what do they teach in schools <laughs> yeah i mean the but those aren't those aren't necessarily the the explanations that we always want, right? Right. And I and I do think David and and if I'm jumping the gun on the next part of the notes, I apologize. But I think that Walter Brueggemann could be a good corrective to Wright's piece here. And we should note, I mean, this is a very brief piece, so I mean, there's no room for systematic theology by any means. Uh, yeah. But but I mean, what Wright is calling lament here. Uh, happens side by side in the Old Testament with more Deuteronomic ideas where, I mean, bad fortune is a punishment for unrighteousness. Yeah. And also, you know, next to, uh, you know, and I'm trying to think, you know, something like Ecclesiastes where, you know, not only is there no explanation, but there's also no lament, there's just a resignation. So, I mean, you know, the the central thesis of, you know, Walter Brueggemann's giant 600-page theology of the Old Testament uh, is that, you know, the biblical witness is inherently plural and that, you know, we receive that as a gift so that pastorally we can bring to bear different voices from that plurality depending on the pastoral moment. Yeah. I, I know that this article isn't actually long enough to accomplish that whole biblical multi multivocal polyphonic <laughs> well but that but that's Brueggemann's thing that's not N.T. Wright's thing that's one shortcoming I think of Wright's project is that he is more inclined than Brueggemann is to try to systematize what's going on in the biblical witness yeah it, and I, I'm glad that you brought. I'm glad that you brought him into this because you know the uh, you know a question that's been in my mind. It popped into my head basically as soon as I read that paragraph uh, in his article was, "What about the Book of Lamentations? That's literally named after lament, um, but it is about mourning the destruction of Jerusalem, for which the prophet Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations." Um, knew the reasons right provides very <laughs> clear pro- reasons yeah like like you know god you know it, it was uh it, it it you know god god was sending jeremiah his pitching signals <laughs> right right so i mean if, so if, if i could offer a brueggemann flavored corrective to wright's project here i would say that i mean you can make the case that pastorally now is not the time for Deuteronomy-style explanation or lamentation-style explanation. Now is the moment for psalmic lament. And I think that you could make that case still get done what N.T. Wright gets done, but without flattening the plurality of the biblical witness. Yeah. 
I, th- I think I think you're 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 getting at, and I appreciate appreciate you finding a better way to say it because mostly I was just grumpy, and I'm not articulate when I'm grumpy. Um, <laughs> but as I was reading through the article, uh, I kept thinking. Oh, I, I kept wanting to say to the NT Wright who was not next to me. Um, but there's a reason why people read the Bible and think that sometimes bad things happen because God is trying to do something and often something that has to do with personal sin <laughs> right which, which is or, uh, or national sin or I mean, national if you look sin. if you look at Amos right I mean you know that is it involves personal sin to be sure but it also has to do with economic relationships right right so uh, it, so it's it's if if we were to come alongside this article and you know expand it out so that it's still accomplishing what it wants to accomplish but without with painting with a smaller brush <laughs> uh, to say that sometimes lamentations sometimes deuteronomic witness is the thing that's appropriate but that's not what's pastorally called for at this time and the Bible gives us another way to say these things, or another way to address this situation that is pastorally appropriate. Yeah, and like I said, that is the lifetime project of Walter Brueggemann, because I mean, for Brueggemann, I mean, he is, and I get, I know it's an episode about NT right, and I'm talking about Walter Brueggemann, but bear with me, listeners, because what Brueggemann does, I think, better than anyone else that I have read, is he goes about the project of rehabilitating those parts of the Bible that modern sensibilities, liberal and conservative, uh, find least palatable by situating them within that plurality and saying that right now might not be the moment for this voice, but the moment's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember Job's friends do the right thing for a while, which is they sit with him for seven days and just cry. So they, yeah. they do the lament. It's only, you know, in the very long middle chapters of that book where they screw up and they screw up by attempting to give answers, not because there aren't answers, but because those answers, they're giving answers about things they don't know anything about. They haven't been authorized yeah. to, to speak for God the way Jeremiah was. And I suspect most of us, including Jerry Falwell and his son, are not authorized to speak for God. Yeah. So Job's friends are very bad friends. Jeremiah was a very good friend to Israel, and even though even though they're saying the same thing, even so they're saying <laughs> the same things, but but it's from a it is with a different um, with a different perspective and a different calling and a different authorization. Authorization was the word I was going to use as someone who should be Catholic right now but isn't yet. <laughs> yes. Right, right. And then I mean one formal distance or difference. Pardon me. Uh, and it's not an absolute one. There are exceptions to this. Uh, but one thing that is notable about, you know, uh, Jeremiah's approach is that when he is talking to Israel, he is talking about their sins as a nation, to be sure, talking about their personal sins, to be sure. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that he doesn't do the way that, I mean, especially um Elihu does in Job and I mean he's the he's the worst of the four I think uh is he says it I mean as you guys were saying uh as someone bearing a message from God not saying we already knew this there's nothing new to say here we already know that it's your fault yeah yeah Uh, again, one of the useful ways to be looking at lots of the Bible and all the wisdom literature, not just your favorite your favorite proverbs that apply practically to the situations you know best. <laughs> well, got to get to this next paragraph. Um, this is the one that set my hair on fire. Um, I am down with lament. I really am. Um, it's it's one of my favorite modes privately uh, but his next paragraph is a doozy um, if I were asked to describe it and I'll just go ahead and read what I wrote 
um, while my hair was still most on fire. Actually, David, could you? It's a, it's not a long paragraph. Could you read the paragraph so our readers, can, so our listeners can hear it? I will. I will read it and then read my description. He says that the point of lament, uh, skipping, uh, the point of lament, uh, woven thus into the fabric of the biblical tradition, is not only that it's an outlet for our frustration, etc. Um, the mystery of the biblical story is that God also laments. Some Christians like to think of God as above all that, knowing everything, in charge of everything, calm and unaffected by the troubles in his world. That's not the picture we get in the Bible. God grieved to his heart, Genesis declares, over the violent wickedness of his human creatures. He was devastated when his own bride, the people of Israel, turned away from him. And when God came back to his people in person, the story of Jesus is meaningless, and thus that's what it's about, he wept at the tomb of his friend. St. Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit groaning within us, as we ourselves groan within the pain of the whole creation. The ancient doctrine of the Trinity teaches us to recognize the one God in the tears of Jesus and the anguish of the Spirit, which uh, my way of describing that is that it's a rather pathetic straw man argument against classic theism supported by some facile proof texting and emotional appeals. Do you have better ways of saying what he's doing here, Nathan, and convincing me that it's a thing worth doing? Well, the thing that I would say, David, is once again, I, I, I think that we should temper this with some, some of Brueggemann's in, insights, right? Uh, you know, the last uh, sentence in that paragraph that you read, that's not the picture we get in the Bible. If we could just amend that and say that's not the only picture we get in the Bible. Thank you. I, th- I, th- I, I, I think that it would be uh, a lot more useful. And again, I really do think that this is a moment where the cool, calm, uh, and, you know, I made reference to him earlier, Panglossian uh, attempt to make all of this a rational picture, this is not the moment for that, right? Uh, But that claim is a pastoral claim, not a systematic claim, right? Now, I do think that, you know, we really can have real disputes about uh, the primacy of this biblical passage or that biblical passage, uh, whether we should read the constancy of God in light of the dynamic movement of God, or whether we should read the changes in God as merely apparent changes in God. All of those are valid theological disputes to have, and we should have them. Uh, but uh, I do think that in this you know, brief little piece, uh, and again, I, I really do think that you know, Wright should have lobbied for double this word count, uh, that, <laughs> you think? <laughs> oh, lordy! Um, I, I I think that that does oversimplify it. So I mean, you know, I I uh, sometimes, David, I think when we talk about modern theologians, I'm going to be making the case for these guys, and uh, you know, you will grudgingly grant me a sliver. Uh, but here, I mean, I you know, we, we seem to be agreeing at least uh, on one level that it's a reductionist piece that we're reading here uh, and that, you know, at the very least we should acknowledge some more complexity in the biblical text. Hey, almost Nathan, as if time were some sort of middle culture maybe we could call it a mid-cult publication that offered the appearance (laughs) of profundity without actually going into things appropriately. It's not journalism, Michael. It's a theme park. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that, that, that that's the last uh, couple sentences of that first paragraph, some Christians like like to think of God, like to think of, as above all that, I mean, I would say transcendent, knowing everything, or omniscient, in charge of everything, or omnipotent slash sovereign, uh, calm and unaffected by the troubles in the world, um, impassable, immutable, impassable, and, Im- and blessed. <laughs> Right, and and I will say that that <laughs> that's bibli- not the picture we get in the Bible. Like uh, what? Well, the, the the last sentence of the following paragraph, I think, helps with that. David, he says the ancient doctrine of the Trinity teaches us to recognize the one God in the tears of Jesus and the anguish of the Spirit. So, I mean, back to this Brueggemann point. Yeah, those things are true, but they're not the whole picture of who God is. Right, and biblical theology, I will go ahead and say, has a tendency to read 
the passages about the constancy of God in light of the movement of God as a character, rather than vice versa, the way that classical theism does. So, I mean, right, right. I, I, I will say that, I mean, you know, it is a real theological difference. Uh, I wouldn't say that it is merely facile proof texting. Uh, I would say that it is a, a genuine dispute in, you know, theology and in biblical studies right now. Uh, yeah. But again, you know, in this brief pace, uh, you know, he doesn't give all of that nuance because he doesn't have the space to. Uh, and, you know, uh, like I said, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, he might have been irresponsible not to demand the space to grant some of that complexity. Now, I, I, I really appreciate your kind of bringing in that pragmatic, um, what are the, you know, how long was this piece supposed to be and how much work can you do in that time? Like that that's really helpful. And as I said, I, I think it was irresponsible to try to do this much work in that much space. Yeah. But just that that sentence where he paraphrases the the infinite traits of deity and then just says that's not the picture we get in the Bible. Like most Christians in all traditions through most centuries of the history of Christianity would disagree with him at that point. Like I know, I know he, I know he's been a bishop, but but <laughs> but I'm more Catholic than that. <laughs> well, and and I'll go ahead and say again, David, that I mean, within academic theology and within academic biblical studies, I mean, this is a dispute about which people have written books. Yeah. So I mean, you know, th- this is. Again, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this position within theology is calling into question classical theism. Uh, and, you know, to do that responsibly really takes a lot more space than this. Now, I think that it is a logically valid case. I think that, like I said, I mean, it is a matter of framing and situating, right? Uh, do you situate those passages where God, you know, uh, mourns, where God changes God's mind, where God becomes angry, do you situate those within the passages that say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Or do you situate the passages that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever in that narrative in which God is less angry the moment before Moses says something stupid and becomes more angry after Moses says something stupid? Right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I, yeah, yeah and, and, and I'll grant that, you know, uh, in a lot of, you know, written theology over the centuries, they have tended to privilege the the same yesterday, today, and forever, and to, I would say, explain away those other passages. That said, I mean, you know, I, I am, you know, no surprise to our listeners, probably more sympathetic to uh, Brueggemann's project and N.T. Wright's project than a, you know, a classical theist would be. Which is why I'm asking you the question. <laughs> oh, sure, right. sure, sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, I mean, but and and this is something that yes, his title is Christianity doesn't have any have to say anything about the coronavirus. He's so he's he's telling an audience this is what Christianity has to say. Though, though. He almost certainly did not write that title. And I, I think the title is misleading because it makes it sound like Christianity doesn't have anything to say about the coronavirus. It does, even by his admission. What it says is lament. It is, a, it is a, uh, an odd combination of, of qualities of God, though. I, I started thinking about this last year when uh, Notre Dame de Paris caught on fire. And people were praying to St. Genevieve, who, of course, is the patron saint of France. And I thought, is St. Genevieve grieved to see this, to see like the symbol of French Catholicism burning to the ground? Or given that she's had the beatific vision and should know perfect happiness in Thomist terms, does she see it all in some context that keeps her from grieving? Or does she just grieve and that grief becomes part of the beatific vision? 
I don't have an answer for that, but I, I, I got to thinking about that last year with Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, uh, I have students working through, uh, Purgatorio right now. And the, the idea that, um, in order to be fitted for Dante's vision of heaven, um, you need to learn to think and feel and choose and desire differently. Um, you know, however, however we think of, of God and however we think of heaven, um, heaven is not here and God is not us. And some assertion of, of difference, <laughs> I think is at the very least biblically warranted. Um, but to downplay right. that, to say the important thing that Christianity has to tell us is that God is sad too. Is, I don't know. It just seems so. It just seems very thin to me. Um, and this is from this is from someone who is so good about talking about the hope of bodily resurrection right. and a new creation. I, I was really waiting for the Tom I love. <laughs> <laughs> to sort of bring that that you know that sort of rainbow of eschatological hope in, and he doesn't. Well, Nathan, right. can you and, get and, uh, and right the... on the phone with David? David? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I I can try to. I don't know if David wants that, but uh, if he if he made that request of me, I would attempt. It but, would be an uh, honor. Well, what what I would say, David, is that you know, once again. I think that the God that Wright is presenting here uh, is a biblical vision of God. This is the God that Hosea is interacting with, who flies into a rage at the idolatry of Israel, right? You know, it's not a matter of uh, Israel has eternally been idolatrous in this moment, and so therefore there's no need to get worked up about it, but it is a God who does rage, a God who is jealous, a God who you know, does have these experiences, and I, and I think that he would grant that there is difference, uh, but the question that he might raise, and of course he doesn't raise in this piece, which is why I'm having to sock puppet N.T. Wright, uh, is, <laughs> you know, is it different in the sense that uh, God is uh, beyond it in the sense that he doesn't experience it, or beyond it in the sense that God experiences them with an intensity of which we are not c capable because of the numbness that we have accrued by our earthly existence. Are mm -hmm. both of those mm -hmm. possible? And if they are possible, then, mm -hmm. you know, again, what, where I would want to go, uh, being a disciple both of N.T. Wright and of Walter Brueggemann, is in, in a Brueggemannian direction to say that in this moment, not merely pragmatically, uh, but, I mean, theologically, is one facet of God's reality an intensity of passion uh, that, you know, we have become incapable of because of our existence. Now, I know that, you know, stoic-inflected patristic writers would say, you need to quit drinking whatever you're drinking at that point. But I think that it is something that is at least possible in the biblical text. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I, I appreciated his mention of the tears of Jesus. Right, like that, that uh, that was useful to me, because um, the God Man is still the God Man. If that, yeah, if, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, Jesus was weeping, knowing full well what he intended to do. Right. Um, you know the, the the Jesus of 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 the Gospel of John in the story of the resurrection of of the raising of Lazarus um, is large and in charge and still weeping, right? Uh, so I I I like that that narrative moment in the Gospels as a way of putting together these elements, um, and I appreciate him including it. Uh, including it in his list of texts about 
um, a God who is sympathetic for us in our human in our human weakness and our human frailty, and in our human tragedy. Um, and continues to be sympathetic, says Hebrews. Well, okay. If explanations aren't the business of Christians, says uh, N.T. Wright, what is our business, Michael? Well, lament, I suppose, is what he thinks our business is. And then he, he says at the end that out of that, out of the out of the lament that God's presence partakes in, there could emerge new possibilities, new acts of kindness, new scientific understanding, new hope. So, so the idea is that lament, in, in lamenting, Christians kind of clear a space for the future, but we can't really imagine what that future is, what the, the new possibilities of hope are until we've lamented. Um, until we've, he, he talks about T.S. Eliot in the 1940s, earlier in the article, and, and he says that Eliot's advice was to wait without hope because you don't even know what you're supposed to hope in. You're, you're going to hope in the wrong things if you're not careful. So patience, lament, uh, a, a kind of hope in nothing but God without any kind of specifics attached to that, and then um, work afterwards. And, you know, then he gets his shot in at Trump and Boris Johnson at the end. New wisdom for our leaders. Now there's a thought. Well, of course, they got to take a shot at Boris Johnson. Swipe. <laughs> Swipe along the way. What do you think about that, Nathan? How, how does yeah. how does that work? I, I think that's about right. And I, and I think that, you know, this is a, a turn that Wright's work has taken over the last 10 years or so uh, towards worship as something that has epistemological significance. Uh, so as Michael just said so well, and I'm going to stumble through an attempt to paraphrase, uh, it is in singing these songs of lament, asking why, without offering our explanations in our categories that we have in our minds right now, formulated as they are right now, by refusing that, by refusing to systematize, I think what, what Wright is getting at is that there are not only new emotional possibilities, but perhaps even new epistemological possibilities that lie on the other side of lament. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's where I think, you know, the the new possibilities, new acts of kindness, so on and so forth. You know, I mean, again, thinking back to the, the biblical witness, you know, I mean, historically speaking, you know, I mean, the notion of gathering together in a place to read the Law of Moses doesn't seem to be on the horizon during the monarchical period. Uh, you know, with, with brief exceptions like when Josiah discovers Deuteronomy uh, in the temple, right? And yet it becomes the core of the identity of the people in the exile and after the exile. So, I mean, you know, that, that's, a, that, that's an example that comes to me immediately. Uh, but then, you know, if you want to get, you know, theological about it, which I think we can, uh, you know, I would say that, and, you know, I, I realize by saying this, uh, I am running parallel to something Pelagius wrote, but I'm not trying to be a Pelagian here, I promise. Uh, but it is in lamenting Christ that new ethical possibilities for the faithful open up after the resurrection of Christ. Now, if it were Pelagian, I would say that's all it does. That ain't all it does, but that's something that it does. Yeah. <laughs> I like your uh, your use of the word epistemic, um, and I, I guess that's that's something like what he's saying uh, when he says you know bringing new wisdom. Um, I I was thinking uh, about um, the uh, Marquez story, um, the very old man with enormous wings. Ah yes yes, and the way uh, the. The villagers who find this very old man with enormous wings uh, have all of these questions about who he is and, and why he's there. Um, all of their answers are woefully insufficient, and they ultimately turn away from him from him to this weird, you know, sideshow freak, which is a giant spider with a girl's head. And her story is she got turned into that for breaking curfew by God. <laughs> And uh, I love that story. I really do. <laughs> right. So 
and and the reason why that answer is, is is satisfying is because it's an answer that already fits with everything they already think about the world. Um, that they, they, they it, it it's an answer that requires learning nothing. It requires no change about what you think or the way that you think. Um, and there is something about lament that that keeps your 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 nose, your eyes buried in that intolerable present moment, uh, refusing to dismiss it with such ideas as already fit inside your head <laughs> as it is. Well, what else in this article is there that's good that I missed because I apparently was only capable of hate reading it? <laughs> Nathan? Uh, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that. I mean, we have pretty much given a paragraph-by-paragraph paragraph reading of this article. It is very short. Listeners, I'd encourage you to go read it yourself. It won't take but a few minutes. Um, I will say that, you know, not necessarily referring back to the article, but referring back to our conversation uh, as David rightly notes here, Wright in shorthand in this piece makes reference to some pretty grand debates in biblical hermeneutics in Christian theology. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to getting a look at, you know, his view uh, in, you know, one of his popular books, uh, the one that I would recommend is Surprised by Joy, or not Surprised by Joy, that's C.S. Lewis, Surprised by Hope, there we go. <laughs> because he was, you know, copying C.S. Lewis's titles. Uh, but <laughs> um, in that book, I mean, he really does lay down, I think, his best, you know, sort of non-specialized case for uh, taking the passages that, that in a lot of theology get, I would say, dismissed as anthropomorphism. Uh, he makes a case for taking them as primary, and the more negative passages, God does not, God does not, God does not, so on and so forth, as commentary on what goes on in the narrative rather than being the primary categories. So I, I, I cheated, David. I'm leaning beyond the article, uh, but I think that's the place to go to if these questions that, you know, David rightly brings up uh, are encouraging you to investigate, you know, whether there are arguments for them. That's where I'd start looking for those arguments. Michael? I really like the idea, and he, like everything else, he hits on it briefly and then moves on, that trying to assign sin as, specific sins as the cause for every bad thing that happens in the world, even these era-defining bad things that happen in the world, is self-centered. Um, and, and in fact, one thing we ought to think about instead is not so much what have I done to deserve this is as... Uh, how much worse is it for people in situations other than mine? He says, it's bad enough facing a pandemic in New York City or London. What about a crowded refugee camp on a Greek island? What about Gaza or South Sudan? And man, uh, that's a, those, are, those are good questions, you know? Um, yeah. But I mean, one of the temptations of lament is to see yourself as being in the worst situation in the world. It, it can become self-centered as well. But really the sort of lament he's talking about is a global lament. We're, we're lamenting not just for whatever's happening to us, not just that I couldn't enter the Catholic Church on Easter as I had planned, um, not just that people I know are sick, but that, um, that, you know, people all over the world are suffering and it's not equal. Um, some places are suffering far worse than others and they deserve our lament. You know, even if we don't happen to live in them. Right. Creation groans. Indeed. And the spirit groans within us about it, too. Well, dear listeners, that is our episode in which Michael and Nathan talk me down <laughs> about N.T. Wright's article. What are we doing next week? Uh, it's not going to get any happier. Uh, we're going to take <laughs> on uh, the Sophocles tra tragedy Philoctetes, uh, and it is a uh, tragedy that doesn't end with a giant body count, uh, so I'm sure that'll be part of our conversation as well. 
All right, I've never read that one. I have no idea what it's even about. It is pretty awesome. I, I, I'll confess, it's it's one of my favorite ones to teach, and that's why I'm picking it. <laughs> very, very cool. Well, you can teach us, too. And you, too, dear listeners. Uh, so tune in then uh, next week for that particular episode. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it at the, well, at the back end. In the meanwhile, if you have any questions or comments about this particular episode, you can uh, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can tweet us at um, CH Radio Network. That's that right. right. All right, sweet deal. I'm getting this one. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Uh, you can like us on Facebook. Um, give us uh, reviews and stars and whatnot on iTunes, things of that nature. In the meanwhile, I'm wishing you all grand weeks on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, Christian Humanist Podcast, as a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and Michael's currently our editor. And I'll leave you with the words of Martin Luther, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>